Turn with me now, please, to Genesis chapter 6. As we consider together the Word of God. Yet again. This is a very familiar passage that we're going to look at in some detail. Um, we all know the story, but do we really? And, and what has the Holy Spirit to give us from these few verses here? I'll begin reading at verse 5 of Genesis chapter, chapter 6. As Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us God's Word. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, again we ask for your help. We know that we don't see or understand without the work of your Holy Spirit, so we ask for his help now, even as we seek your face in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think of when you think of the story of Noah's Ark? What's immediately? Boom. What happens? No. A plastic ark with doors that open and animals that walk in the side. Um, the story, 40 days and 40 nights, and the dove, and the olive branch, and, um, and, and the ark on, on the top of Mount Ararat. And of course, the rainbow in the sky, the sign of the covenant that God made with His people for all eternity. Um, but when we, but, but it, 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 all of that, of course, is true. I mean, all those things that I mentioned, except the plastic, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, the, but all those things. As we think about these things, that's all true. That all happened. But when we dwell just on those little bits and pieces, we miss something very important about what's going on here. In, in Genesis 6 through the end of, on into chapter 9. Um, it's not a children's story. It's very much an adult story. It's very much a story that, an account, a history that adults, as, as adults, we must pay attention to. And as children grasp the full context and reason for all of these events, um, it, it, it transforms their lives and all of our lives. So if you think about it, it's, it's fundamentally an account of God condemning in his wrath human sin. Just think of the helplessness, the despair, the desperation of those who drowned in that flood. And then we see that it's so much more than those, 
those pictures that we usually associate with this account of, of God saving Noah from his wrath. So as, as we look at these, these verses then, and, and these, how many? Four verses. Let us, first of all, see the thoroughgoing, per, pervasive nature of human sin. Then, secondly, the righteous wrath of the Creator of the universe. And then finally, of the grace that found Noah and finds all of God's people. That's what we want to look at. So first of all then, in verse 5, the wickedness of man. God saw, the Lord rather, saw the wickedness of those whom He had created. That it was great in the earth, every intention of their heart. This first indication of the profound hardness of the human heart, if you, as you think about it, it really is a reversal of those words in Genesis 1 and 2. The creation, what did God see in Genesis 1 when He looked out at what He had done? He saw at that point that it was good. And now, God saw again, but, but this time, the wickedness was great. Man whom I have created, he says, down in verses 6 and 7. It grieved him to, to his heart. He was sorry he made them. And the Lord says, I will blot out the one whom I have created. So we, we've got the creator of the universe going from he sees the goodness of his creation to now seeing the wickedness and the evil of it. Now, when he says in verse 5, when Moses tells us in verse 5 that God saw the intention of the hearts of his, of his creatures, we don't normally associate the word heart, at least in present-day America, with the notion of thought, of ideas. It's more almost exclusively now emotion. Well, they're both there as they're used in the Scripture here. Both... The, the, because the Old Testament normally uses a more extensive meaning that have, he would have us understand of, of the use of that word. As one commentator put it, the heart in the Old Testament is the place of the activity of man's thoughts. The thought workshop. These thoughts produce formings and imaginings, thought combinations. See how thoroughgoing it is? That idea behind the word heart. And, and so Moses says, tells us, the heart was only evil continually. continually. Not just their feelings, but their thinking. And their planning. And the actions that resulted from that. Or as Jeremiah put it in chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately corrupt. You see the same idea running through the, our Lord Jesus' teaching. In Matthew 7, He talks about a corrupt tree bearing, producing corrupt fruit. The Lord understood His Old Testament. And then in John 3, John tells us that, quoting the Lord Jesus, 
that which is born of the flesh is flesh, this kind of notion of the flesh. And then verse 19 of John 3, men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And then one more, Jesus speaks of the Jewish leaders in John 7 and 8 and he says of them, you shall die in your sins. Your father is the devil. That, that's overwhelming when you think about the nature of evil. The nature of evil, as we see it in, in, in Moses, as we see it in our Lord Jesus, as we see it in all through the Scriptures, that notion of the nature of the darkness in which we dwell, the depth and breadth of the Bible's description of our rebellion against the living God, our Creator. But our day, people in our day just don't think that way. I had a recent conversation with a friend who said, well, yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses believe in God and, and Muslims and Buddhists, they all believe in God. They're all going to heaven because they believe in God. And, and our secular friends speak of the same thing. Now they're in a better place now that they're dead. That notion uh, that tragic blindness that we all have without the help of God to the nature, the breadth and depth, depth of the evil that's all around us and that is in ourselves. We overlook the corruption of our own hearts. We fail to understand how we, in effect, spit in the face of the Creator of the universe with our disobedience. We ignore it all being sin-blinded creatures as we are. We owe our next breath to the One who sustains our very lives, but we rebel against Him in, in, in thought and in deed and in our hearts constantly. An encounter I had with a, with a woman this past spring goes to the point of what I'm trying to, to help us all understand here. I was with my wife in a greenhouse in Lawrence, and, and it's spring and we're buying plants and she's all excited and she's going all over this wonderful greenhouse looking for the next plants to buy and what am I doing? I'm going, you know, I'm, I'm there, you know, I'm supportive. Okay. Oh, that looks great. Please, yes, let's get that one. That, that will be beautiful. And as I'm wandering around, while she's wandering around somewhere else, I, I, I notice a middle-aged woman wearing a t-shirt. And on this t-shirt is the inscription, Be a nice human. Be a nice human. And be in the way I am. <laughs> okay, I, I just couldn't let that one go. I, I don't know if, and I, and I debated with myself, would the Lord use this or am I, or am I just being my usual dorky self here? Okay. And, and I said, and so finally I, I, I thought it through, okay, how am I going to approach this, this woman, this, this woman created in the image of God? Okay. How am I going to approach her? And so I said, I noticed your t-shirt and be a nice human being. Why do you think it is that humans are not nice? 
She kind of thought. That was part of my goal, goal there at that point. Well, she says, I think we all need a good mother. Well, sure. <laughs> yes, indeed. And then she adds, um, and I think we need to get up every morning and say to ourselves, I'm going to be nice today. You see, that's, that's what our world thinks of when they think of evil. Unless they're confronted with horrific evil that sells newspapers or, or spots on, on the internet. But it's, it, even that is, is passed over, isn't it? We don't see what Moses by the Holy Spirit is teaching us here about what it is. Or closer to my heart and my thinking. It is the nature of, of our evil. There are these unfruitful thoughts, as one Christian counselor put it. In my unfruitful thoughts, when somebody has hurt me, I become the prosecuting attorney who amasses the evidence and presents it to the jury. And the jury says, we find that person guilty. And then I'm, I'm the jury at that point, of course. And then I become the judge sitting on the bench. You are guilty and this is what you deserve. And then I wallow in my triumph. I don't know about you, but I do that way too often in those painful situations. And I know God would have me not do that, but that's the nature of this thought factory that we have in the darkness of our sin. Well, this condition that we see around us, that we see ourselves, leads to the second point in these verses, and that is the reality of the wrath of God. Because this is an adult story, remember. God, in Genesis 1, saw that it was good. The creation reflected His goodness, His holiness. But now, because of the continued rebellion against His just and perfect rule, because of who He is as not only holy and good, but also just, we have verse 5. God saw the wickedness of man was evil only, what was evil continually, and in His justice and wrath, in His justice, wrath and judgment followed. He justly destroyed the wicked in the flood to follow. And as we see in our Bibles, the Lord Jesus, being the eternal Son, responds to human wickedness in the same way. Promising judgment and wrath when He returns in glory. In Matthew 25, Jesus teaches His disciples, then He will say, to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The wrath of God poured out on his enemies is real. 
Hebrews 12, 28. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. But as we go through these verses, there are many puzzling ideas in them that we need to, to try to come to grips with a bit here, to try to understand, because we're puzzled at times by this language here. For, so for example, how can a sovereign God verse 6, seemingly be astounded or, saw, or sorry that he made these human beings who have rebelled against him. I am sorry that I made them, he repeats in verse 7. How can a God who knows thoroughly the hearts of his creatures, how can those whom he has created grieve him to his heart? But as we think about these puzzling phrases, we will find in them, as we think, great comfort and hope in this same God. But we must begin by thinking about these things with, with humility. The Apostle Paul in Romans 11 speaks to this. In Romans 11, the Apostle says in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! How inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be the glory forever. Understanding the mind of God is something that ultimately is beyond us. Yet God helps us along the way and gives us what we need to know. And so this Genesis 6 passage with this somewhat puzzling language Perhaps we can, we can have an analogy that will help as we seek to understand the mind of God here. And the analogy goes this way. I'm driving south from Lawrence this morning. All right, Y'all have been along the turnpike know what I'm talking about here. And you get south of Emporia. And I'm on the turnpike and on this incredible highway. And you know, there's, there's workers they weren't any working this morning, but there were there are, are work areas along the way. And and if if I were there during the week and I and I could see these these people working there, these men working, I could see the the, the, the jackhammers and the concrete and the asphalt and the and all the different kinds of work, and I could describe that to you how they were creating that stretch of highway. Now, if I'd been there back there in the 50s, I could, I could have even given you more about how the workmen did it. They put it together. Yet, as I went further south on that amazing highway, really, when it comes right down to it, if I'd gotten off that highway south of Emporia and gone out into those Flint Hills and gotten away from that highway and stood on one of those hills, looked 
my thought would have been, who made this? And how did he make it? That is just the mind of God. A geologist could perhaps describe to you his theory of how it came about, but not even he could tell you who made it or how they went about it or where those raw materials came from. There is the mind of God. That's our limits. So as we look at these verses, we see that. Um, and it's the unfathomable fathomable mind of our Creator that what we're talking about here. In this instance, Moses, by the work of the Holy Spirit, uses language that brings God's mind down to our level in some very limited ways. And it, a language which can only point us to the mind of God. But as it does that, it shows us that our God is not fickle. Rather, He sees, He ponders, He reveals His actions before doing them. And He does them for good reason. He has His expectations also revealed to us in His Word. His standards, His holiness. As the Confession Shorter Catechism says, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. There's the standard. That's who He is. That reflects His holiness. It reflects His goodness in giving us that law. He's not whimsical or, or fickle. The gods of the ancient world were. And even our present idols, idols like success and health, science, engineering, medicine. These gods, these idols are changeable and at root only reliable in certain ways, in limited ways. For example, doctors, for all the good they do, still don't know it all. They still misdiagnose. They still get puzzled and wondered what is going on. But our Creator never misdiagnoses. Our Creator knows in this way. While we know with Paul that our understand the Apostle Paul that our understanding of God's mind is limited to what it reveals to us, we also know we can rely on him. How comforting to know that God grieves evil. Even as the evil around us in our own wicked ways grieve us thereby revealing His own goodness. How good is it to know that our God is sorry that evil is present in His good creation. How good is it to know that because He keeps His Word to Noah and His family, we His people can also turn to Him and rely on Him. And this language reveals the heart of our Creator, His passion and love as He hates evil and pours out grace on Noah. He shepherds His people in love and mercy and gives us hope of final justice. What a resting place that hope gives us. 
final justice. Final justice because he here shows us that his wrath against evil is certain and will indeed come finally. Third point. Noah found grace. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. As we look at the context of that statement, we come to understand that because of the hearts of human, of fallen humanity, it, because of our hearts, it had to be grace. It had to be mercy. It had to be favor poured out. The unmerited favor of God found Noah. He didn't earn it. Moses tells us of Noah's righteousness in verse 9 where he says he was blameless in his generation. But even that statement demonstrates the grace of God working in Noah's life as he did nothing to earn that favor. God gave that righteous, those righteous works to him as, and worked in Noah that he might have that. That grace. So corrupt was Noah's heart that he desperately needed the Lord's favor. And he desperately needed the ark. The certainty of God's wrath drives us by God's grace like Noah to a Savior. James Montgomery Boyce in his comments on these verses quotes Martin Luther. Without the Holy Spirit and without grace man can do nothing but sin. And so man goes on endlessly from sin to sin. But this knowledge of our sin is the beginning of our salvation in that we completely despair of ourselves and give God alone the glory of our righteousness, for our righteousness. This despair should be the effect of our study of these verses. Instead of congratulating ourselves on how good we are or how good we are becoming, we should turn from ourselves and lean on Christ alone for our salvation. After considering our hearts and our rebellion and our sin, we ought to despair. God would have us despair. As without a rescuer, without this need for a rescuer, we face certain judgment. We must have someone else to deliver us from our blind, hard hearts to save us from the floodwaters of justice. This knowledge of sin in the, that is shown to us in these verses displays our, our desperate need of God's mercy and love. Another way to look at our situation, the language of God grieving and sorrowing, as Calvin put it, pierces our hearts. That understanding of our Lord helps us as we seek deliverance. His heart is not just His will, but His love for His people as well. How great, 
how marvelous, how wonderful is the love of our God and our salvation. This desperate condition remedied by the cross. The eternal Son sacrificed Himself for us while we were still His enemies. Sacrificial love for desperate human beings. We don't understand the mind of God, of course. It comes right down to us. But we see His heart for His people and His grace for Noah. And most especially for us in the sacrifice of His Son. His Son taking our sins, guilt, and shame on Himself. Substituting for us, taking our place under God's righteous, just anger, disfavor, and wrath that we might be joined to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. That we might enjoy the presence of the living God in all of our lives. The presence of our Creator in all of our lives. That we might be forgiven. That that cross gives to us the enjoyment of our Savior's company as we live for Him. And that we might not receive the righteous and just death the people of Noah's day received. The marvel, the wonder of not being condemned to suffer the wrath of God. The joy of knowing deliverance from death and hell because the eternal Son took our just condemnation and rose triumphantly from the grave. So the question for each of us is, is Jesus the righteous your ark? If you have repented and rested in Him alone, rested in His finished work on your behalf through no more merit or effort of your own, but all of Him, then He promises to deliver you from God's righteous judgment and wrath. Rest there. If you have not repented and rested in that finished work, if you have not put all your trust in Him and abandoned all of the substitute idols that fail us and that will fail you, please, our God commands you, come to Him. Put your trust in Him alone. As the Apostle Paul put it, now, is the day of salvation. A number of years ago that in a Christian magazine, a Christian magazine interviewed the great British preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones just a few years before he died and went to be with the Lord. This particular interviewer asked Lloyd-Jones, he said, 
What parting word, as we conclude this interview, what parting word have you for the secular man or woman who does not take Jesus seriously? Dr. Lloyd-Jones replied, I can only say, flee from the wrath to come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Flee from the wrath to come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, thank You. Thank You for Your Word and for all that You give us. But most of all, thank You for the salvation that You want on that cross. While it is so beyond us to understand Your mind, we understand that You came for us. Help us to always rest in You and forsake our idols that You might have the glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.